Well, hey, good morning, City Light. Uh, it's good to see you guys. My name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, last week, Mo kicked us off in our series through the book of Ephesians and uh, did just the first two verses, introing and get, getting us excited for spending the next five or six months in this book. And so, uh, man, Ephesians is, is jam-packed with beautiful truths that have literally changed my life. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and so I am very excited that we're studying it, but, but this is crazy. In the first three chapters of this book, there isn't one single command, okay? The first three, you can read through them, there isn't one single command. It's just good news after good news. And so uh, Paul uses these first three chapters to show us uh, who we are. In other words, our identity, right? And he spends the next three chapters showing us how our identity should impact our activity, okay? So, so who we are should impact what we do and uh, and Paul goes to extreme lengths through this book to answer the question, "Who are you?" Which is a good question to answer, right? Like that's what we, we need to know: Who are you? And so, uh, but the reality is, when most of us are asked that question, "Who are you?" We like to respond with what we've done or our accomplishments or what we're good at. But Paul shares this beautiful truth that who you are actually has nothing to do with what you've done, right? If you've trusted in Jesus. Who you are has nothing to do with what you've done and everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel, that our identity is wrapped up not in our works, but in Jesus' perfect finished works. And so my goal this morning, as we open up God's Word, Ephesians 1, and study through it, is that we would walk away with a better, more firm understanding of who we are because of what Jesus has done. So that's what we're going to be. You can open up your Bibles to Ephesians 1, uh, uh, verses 3 through 10 is where we're going to be. This is actually the longest sentence in the entire Bible. So cool to know for trivia. If you want to impress like your, your, you know, your fling or something like that, and it's coming to the 11, you're like, hey, just so you know, you're going to study the longest passage. It wasn't because Austin told me. You know, I don't know. You may have to confess that later. But, um, but, but this is the longest sentence. So for actually verse, verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one long run-on sentence. And, um, and really, um, it, it's just, it's just it, Paul explaining the expanse of what God has done in believers' lives. And, and it's awesome. And, and by the way, Paul is a brilliant man. He knows proper grammar, okay? He knows where you should put a, you know, a period or a comma or an explanation point. But, but all of that, um, he, he does this to, to write this absurdly long, wild sentence that shows the expanse and beauty and majesty of what Jesus Christ has done for broken sinners like you and I, okay? So it is awesome, and uh, I'm excited. So let's start. We'll read verse 3. And uh, it just says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So first thing I want us to notice, is really quick, is the tense of our blessing. Okay, so Paul says, Blessed be God uh, the Father, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So that's past tense, right? Meaning that, uh, in other words, your blessing in Jesus is a done deal. Like, it's finished and secure. You already have it. God isn't waiting for you to, like, improve or get better or show that you've really deserved it in order for him to bless you. No, when you place your faith in Jesus, you are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And if we are, that means that we don't need any other blessings, right? Because we're, we have every blessing in Jesus. Um, and so, just to be clear, Jesus is the blessing of the Christian's life. He is our treasure, and he's the source of any other blessing. This is what Paul is saying in verse 3. But here's the problem that I think a lot of us face. We spend most of our time asking for things that we already have, 
don't we? Like, I, I feel like a lot of us can spend time and we forget, and we're asking for things like joy, and we want peace, and we want purpose when we actually have all those things in Jesus. And so if you're in the room and you've asked Jesus recently for more joy, if you ask God for more joy, well, Jesus in John 15 says that his joy is in you, and his joy is complete. So you already have joy, right? If you're asking God for peace, you're saying, I just want peace in this crazy season of time. Would you give me peace? In John 16, Jesus says, I give you peace. You have peace because why I've overcome the world. Romans 5.1, you have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. So you already have peace. If you're looking, man, I just want purpose. I just want direction. What am I supposed to do with my life, God? Jesus was clear in Matthew 28 that your purpose in life is to make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel. Tell people about Jesus' love and his glorious message. So just to be clear, we don't need to go find anything else. We need to draw from what we already have been given in Jesus. I don't know how many of you are familiar with a woman named Hetty Green. Uh, you can look her up on Wikipedia. It's a crazy story. She was known uh, as the richest woman in the world in the, in the early 1900s, okay? And so uh, Hetty was recognized both for her immense riches and her staunch frugality, okay? Uh, if you think you're a saver, you don't even scratch the surface, okay? You don't even hold a candle to Hetty Green. Uh, her net worth when she died was around $200 million, which equivalent today would be about $40 billion, Okay, so she's like, Warren Buffett, I'm catching you, right? Like, that's like what, that's how rich Hetty Green was. And so, but she was so frugal that her son broke his leg. She insisted on taking him to a free clinic. It doesn't heal right and later has to get amputated. This is the richest woman in, in like, the world at the time, okay? Uh, she lived in a small apartment in New Jersey and was extremely stingy. Her meal of choice was oatmeal that was heated on uh, the radiator in her office, okay? Uh, and then in her old age, she developed a bad hernia and um, refused to get an operation because it cost $150, Okay, she refused to get her hernia operated on because it cost $150, and so her health decreased continually because she wouldn't get treatment, and then, um, and then she later died from a stroke in 1916. This is crazy, right? Like, you're with me? This is, like, kind of wild. I mean, Hetty had all of the riches at her fingertips to help her and to heal her, and yet she never tapped into the resources she had, right? Like, she, and she suffered from it. And City Light... The sad reality is that you and I do this every single day in response to what Jesus has given us, right? We are heady green in response to God's grace. We, too, have an unlimited spiritual bank account in Jesus that he has given us to help us through every season of life, and instead we try and refuse it and muscle our way through it on our own. It's like, what are you doing? You have an immense amount of riches offered to you spiritually, and God is doing that, and you're rejecting them. And so Paul, in these verses, is pleading with us to see how rich you are in Jesus and to enjoy it. It's one thing to know there's a number in your bank account. It's another thing to take some money out and have a vacation, you know? Like, and so I think that's what the Lord is calling us to do. Realize, not a physical thing. I mean, if you want to, yeah. I'm saying spiritual blessing, spiritual goodness, peace, joy, uh, happiness, all those things wrapped up in Jesus. And so to be clear, the believer's need is not to receive something more. You don't need to have anything more, but to do something more with what you already have in Jesus. And so there's this long list of spiritual blessings that Paul notes, and so I just want to hone in on two of them, uh, and really the source and the substance of them. And so the first blessing that I want us to see is that we are chosen by the Father. We're chosen by the Father. That's the first point. So look at verse 4 with me. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How good does it feel to be chosen? Like, right? Like, it feels, it feels really good. Uh, I love that I get to wake up every morning next to my beautiful wife and know that somehow, according to the grace of God, she chose to spend the rest of her life with me. You know, like, I love that. It's awesome. I don't love when we play basketball and I'm last to be chosen. Like, that's just not a good feeling. So, so we're all on the same page. It feels good to be chosen, right? We, we love to be chosen. And I don't want you to pass over this city. Like, I don't want you to just think it's this random kind of word in here. This passage literally says, verse 4, says that God, the creator of the sun and the stars and the earth and every living being, chose you. Like, this is beautiful. Don't pass over this and think this is just some light reality. This is beautiful and heavy and real. And it says that, um, that it goes even further. It says that how you're chosen and when you're chosen. So it says he chose us, when did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Wait a minute. So this sounds different than how I chose my wife, didn't it? So when I was looking for a wife and wondering, hey, what, to, what, how, what I want my wife to uh, be like, I was looking for the three Gs, okay? Uh, godly, gorgeous, and good cook, okay? And obviously she has all three of those, definitely good cook. And so, um, and, and so when I met her, I'm like, man, this is, this is my wife. Like I chose to pursue her. Your boy put a ring on it, okay? It was a done deal. But, but Paul here this is crazy. He says that God's choosing of you wasn't like how I choose my wife, how I chose my wife. God's choosing of you wasn't like how we choose friends or how we pick a team. No, uh, for God to choose us before the foundation of the world means that he chose you before you did anything good. He, before, for him to choose you before the foundation of the world means that he chose you before you could ever prove that you were worthy of his choosing, before you could ever prove that you were moral or good or smart or influential or productive or whatever. He, for him to choose you before the foundation of the world means that his choosing of you was unconditional. The God of the universe. This is beautiful. This is crazy. This is so different from how we choose each other. And a lot of people, they don't really like the idea of choosing, and I get it. They, you don't like the t- idea of choosing or predestination or election, but and it's hard to swallow, right? There's questions that come with it. It's, co- it's confusing. I don't really understand it. Um, but let me be clear. If you have a problem with choosing, you don't have a problem with what I'm talking about. You have a problem with what the Bible teaches, okay? Like that, we have to wrestle with this reality and say, God, I deeply care about your Bible. It's our only authority. Therefore, I, I'll trust in that, not my emotions to lead me. I'm going to trust in what your Bible says, and, and, and also, God's choosing people isn't like a New Testament idea or just a, a thing that Paul brought up in a couple of his letters. No, God chose the Israelites back in the Old Testament, right? Like he, he chose them specifically and said, no, I, I'm going to love them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to speak to them. I'm going to show my favor to them. And I'm going to oppose any other nation that comes in their way. And there was no rhyme or reason. They didn't deserve it. They didn't do something to really impress God. He chose them just because he loved them. And so it's Old Testament choosing. You get Jesus, obviously, choosing. You get uh, Ephesians 1, and then you get all the way, last book of the Bible, Revelation. This is uh, chapter 13 and uh, verse 8. I'll read it for you. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb who is slain. Now, to get some context, uh, this is John writing at the end of the time, or end of time, and there's this evil beast, right? And so he says that the people that aren't written in this book are going to worship this beast. 
And obviously to worship the beast is to not worship God, and that would be sin. But the people that have their names written in this book uh, will be protected from the beast and remain faithful to God. Okay, so that's, that's the context. And just a question, when was this book written? Before the foundation of the world. That's what it says. And what's the title of this book? The book of the life of the lamb who was slain. Which is an amazing like, title, right? If you walk through at Walmart or Barnes & Noble and you see a book titled The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain, buy that, okay? And then tell me if my name is in it. Uh, but anyways, uh, uh, it's, it's beautiful, right? But, but track with me for a second, okay? This book was written before any person ever breathed. Before the earth was ever created, before the sun was ever formed, and there are specific names in this book that are written down. Again, books in our day, or in their day, aren't like, you know, they're not thinking of word, and just like, I'm going to race, and then type a couple of things. Like, it's like stone, you know, it's like, it's like written, okay? Uh, and, um, and so there's, there's names written in this book that God would have had to choose, right? And the title of this book is The Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. And aligning this with Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, uh, God chose you and knew the only way to save you was to slay his own son so that you might live. Is that crazy? Like, like, I mean, honestly, it was God's plan all along. I mean, he knew that he would create you. He also knew that you would fail and run away and fall and, and sin, and yet he still said, I'm still going to create them because I love them so much, and I'm going to actually, knowing I'm, I'm creating them, I'm also going to know that I'm going to send my son to die for them. Before the foundation of the world, like, this is, this is wild to think about. Jesus dying on the cross was God's plan A. He didn't need another plan. He didn't have another plan. Why? Because God will do what he wants to do. Like, he's that good. He's that powerful. And in Isaiah 46, verse 10, you guys can look there. This is God speaking of who he is. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is the best news imaginable. God declares the end from the beginning, and he knew that you would sin, and he also knew that he would have to send his son to die for you so that you might live. Like, what love is that? What expansive grace is that? He chose to save us in our rebellion, and he promises that he will accomplish all that he declares. And so I know that these things are confusing. I know this idea of choosing, election, and predestination are really confusing. So let me just give you four things to clarify uh, kind of what, what the Bible teaches and what we see in Scripture. And so the first thing is that I want us to understand is that if God didn't first choose you, you never would have chosen him. Okay, first point. If God didn't choose you, you never would have chosen him. Uh, in Ephesians 2, just to, we'll study this in a couple weeks, uh, God clearly says, before Jesus broke into your story, you were dead in your sin. Dead, no heartbeat. No spiritual pulse. Uh, and then in John 3, Jesus says that, uh, that we loved the darkness and hated the light. Okay, We wanted nothing to do with light. We loved and were content in the darkness. In Romans 3, it says that no one seeks God. Like That's just not what we do. We don't seek God on our own. Um, and most of us kind of hold on to this idea that we're like mostly good people, uh, but we just kind of get caught up in doing some bad things. But that's not how the Bible describes us. We are broken, hopeless, orphaned, running as fast away from God as we can, wanting nothing to do with him. And so City Light, without his initiation, without his divine pursuit of us, we would never come to know him. There's this story in, in Luke 15, the parable that Jesus gives, 
And he says that there's this lost sheep, and it's, and it's run away, and it's gone, and it's symbolic of us. And, um, and, and it says that the shepherd goes and goes after it and goes to find it, right? So after he finds it, he grabs it, throws it over his shoulders, and takes it back home. Now, does that say that he, like, waited for the, the sheep to come back home? Like, hey, come here, buddy. Like, just, just come in. Or, or just was, hey, I'm just going to let them come back. No, he went after it, right? Because in the same way, just like the lamb, you and I would never come back to God. You and I have ran away from him, and he had to run and pursue us and go after us, grab us, throw us over his shoulders, kicking and screaming, and bring us back home because we uh, we're, we're just dead in our sin. He had to revive our dead souls. And so, uh, <laughs> to be clear, in being born again as a believer, you had about as much to do with that as you did with being born the first time, right? This beautiful act of grace that God has done for you. And the second thing is, um, God's choosing is out of mercy, not justice. God's choosing is out of mercy, not justice. And so one of the biggest concerns, I think, that, that about election, about choosing, that, that people have or that we have is that why did God choose some and not others, right? Because if God chose, then that means that he chose some and, and, and others. So that, you know, is that, is that fair? And, and we start to come to God thinking, man, I, I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's fair. That doesn't seem right. But I just want to be clear for a, a second. If you want fair, if that's what you're arguing for, we all go to hell, I know that sounds like hard and a tough pill to swallow, but that's the truth. Like, if you want fair, fairness would be every single one of us rightly paying for what we've done. And Romans 6.23 says that you and I have sinned, and our sin, or the payment for that, is death. It's being separated from God. So be really careful as you approach God and you're asking for fairness. Because fairness would be us uh, uh, paying for our sin, right? The gospel isn't fair. City Light, I know that these are hard truths to swallow, right? Like, this is a tough, like, I, I'm, you know, I'm wrestling with it with you, too. But again, this is what the Bible says, and I'm so convinced that this is essential. Un- us understanding this is essential in us having a more full, beautiful view of the gospel. So hear me when I say this. God, and in light of God's choosing is out of mercy, not justice, God is never obligated to save anyone. God's never obligated to save anyone. And so basically what that means is that it, it's his mercy that he decides to save anyone, not fairness. So we get caught up with this question of like, well, God, why didn't, why didn't he just choose everyone? Why didn't he just save everyone? Well, that's not the right question. The right question is why did he choose any? Why did he save any? None of us deserve it. None of us have done anything for it. And it's by his grace, by his mercy that he's plucked us out of our lostness, plucked us out of our sin, darkness, and death, and brought us into life. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you should be humbled that you're receiving a gift that you never deserved, that you never did anything for, that you never pursued, that you never walked towards. No, God in his grace grabbed you when you were lost. That's mercy and grace. You have sinned, you've rejected God, and yet Jesus calls you a saint. It is complete, him choosing you is completely unconditional. No condition, no restraint to it. He just did it because he loves you, and it was before the foundation of the world. His choosing is out of mercy, not justice. And the third thing, this is a key thing for us to understand, is that God doesn't double predestine. This is massive for me this week as I studied and got to articulate some of this theology. God doesn't double predestine. So look at verse 5 in Ephesians 1 with me. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
So when the Bible speaks about predestination or election or choosing, it only speaks of God predestining his elect, okay, his, his chosen people. Um, in other words, God doesn't ever prevent someone from coming to him. Are you tracking with me on that? Like, God doesn't ever prevent someone to come to him. Just because he chose some people to save doesn't mean that he's preventing other people to come to him. He's simply allowing them to walk down the path that they've already chosen for themselves. So to be clear, when the Bible talks about God choosing, it doesn't refer to God choosing people to hell. It says he predestined us in love. Every time you're going to find predestination, election, choosing, you're going to see the direct correlation of his beloved elect, his chosen people. It's not going to say that he predestined people to hell. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says that God doesn't delight in, in, in the death of the wicked. Like he's not happy. God's not some angry person that's just excited to send people to hell. No, he is heartbroken by the fact that we, his rebellious creation, have chosen death and sin over him. And the fourth thing I want us to, to see is that God's choosing doesn't negate our responsibility to choose him. You with me? I know those two things seem to be intention, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, but they're not. God's choosing of us doesn't negate our responsibility to choose him. I know this sounds like a seminary class for a second. This is kind of hard, but these are so important I, for us as a church to understand. And so if you look at John 6, verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So practically, we need to believe right? Like, that's our responsibility. We need to choose to follow Jesus. You need to make a tangible decision to lay down your life and follow Jesus. Give it all to him. And so you can't just sit back and say, well, if I'm one of the elect and one of God's chosen, he's going to save me, and I can just do whatever I want and sit back. No, that's not the gospel. That's not what he's done. If God has chosen you, then he's softened your heart to see the bitterness of sin and the beauty of God. Therefore, respond in faith and follow Jesus. Um, uh, and, and, and therefore, uh, with, with all of this, uh, there's, there's a clear responsibility that we have, right? And then if you look down a couple verses in John 6, verse 44, this is what Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So we need to come to him, right? That's our responsibility. But Jesus says no one can come to him unless the Father draws him because we are so lost. And this draws us back to the first point, right? We wouldn't choose him unless he chose us. We have faith and believe because God gave us faith to believe. So yes, believer, you have made a decision to follow Jesus. That's amazing. I'm happy. Congratulations. But you made that decision because God decided to save you and choose you and soften your heart and rip you out of your lostness. Um, and, 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 and to kind of cap on some of that, uh, D.L. Moody is, a, um, is an amazing theologian or was an amazing theologian, and uh, and he had this kind of thought on Revelation, on the last book of the Bible. He said, man, Jesus knew that people for thousands of years would wrestle with this reality of God's choosing, election, divine sovereignty, and p human responsibility. And, um, and he said that he knew that there would be saints or people that would just cr arms crossed that God's going to do whatever he wants to do, so let's just allow him to do whatever. And he said, God is so adamant about the invitation all through the Bible to come to him, to come to him irregardless, to come. He says that right as John's finishing the letter, he said Jesus, his thought, D.L. Moody, was Jesus came to John and said, hey, John, I want you just to make one more invitation. And in one of the last verses of your entire Bible, uh, John writes, and if you're thirsty, this is Jesus' words, come. Come and have a drink without price. 
So just to be clear, Jesus' call all through the Bible is to come uh, to him. And so the last thing I want to say just on that, on that note, though, is that believing and understanding God's election and choosing should never slow down our passion to evangelize should never slow down our passion to share the good news of the gospel. So if you think because God has chosen who he's going to choose and he's going to save who he wants to save, that, that gives you guys the permission or us the permission to sit back, cross arms, and, and watch TV and let the world just do whatever it's going to do, then you don't understand election, right? Like this should passionately get us to say, I'm going to preach the gospel to every person I know. Gavin Johnson in Omaha, I remember uh, at City Light in Omaha, he, uh, in discipleship, he told me, he said, Austin, man, I have no idea who the Father has chosen. And we, there's no, like, mark. There's no, like, thing you could, like, look on the back of a neck, you know, like the matrix or something like that. It's like, no, we, we have no idea. We never will know. Only God will. And he said, therefore, I will share the gospel with every waiter or waitress I come in contact with. I will share the gospel on every flight I get next to people and the flight attendant. And I will, uh, I'll preach the gospel zealously to come to Jesus, and I'll allow Jesus to do the work of saving souls. Amen. Like, that's what it is. So, so please don't feel like this is a permission. God chose people for you just to sit back and not preach the gospel. No, preach the gospel because Jesus is using that in order to reveal his chosen people, who he's saved. And I get passionate about God's choosing, one, because it's biblical, and two, because I have friends that I grew up with that are walking down some dark paths right now, like, like jail, uh, uh, drugs, addiction, like just all of this darkness, right? And I don't look back on my life and say, wow, I'm so glad I didn't choose that path. I look back on my life and say, thank you, Jesus, for ripping me out of the path that I was so joyfully walking in, right? It was God's grace to pull me out of all of that. And I know that's like, hot. there's a lot to do with what those four things we just covered, but through all of that, hear this question, hear this, that God is gracious to choose sinful people. Like, I just want you to sit in this reality for a second. It's, just push the doctrine away for just a quick second, all the questions that come with it, and just think about the God of the universe wasn't entitled to, or didn't have to choose anybody out of his justice, right? And yet he decided to choose sinful, broken, rebellious people into his family. So I, I know that there's a lot to do with it, but I feel like sometimes God's choosing gets overclouded with all these questions, and we don't actually strip it for what it is, and just say, God, I can't believe that you chose anyone. You didn't have to. Like, this is beautiful. So see, like, would we see the beauty of God's um, election and of his choosing? And, and, and I know this is a lot to take in, but really quick, can I just say, this is God who we're talking about. And if you could perfectly understand him, and if you could write an, a brief essay of who God is, then we're not talking about the same God. Like, that wouldn't be God, right? So I just want to give you permission as your pastor to say it's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to have some verses in your Bible that you just don't understand, and you say, God, maybe I, I can't wait to eternity when I get to understand that, right? But I'm going to do my best to understand the Bible right now and what you've given us, and I know that you say that you've elected, and I know that you say that there's a responsibility for us to choose. Therefore, those don't seem to make sense together, but I'm just going to believe both of them are true, and God, that you've been gracious. And so let me just give you the freedom to know that you don't have to have everything figured out, and God's going to be a little confusing, and that's okay. Uh, a friend, a mentor of mine told me, it makes sense to me that my God can do that which I cannot comprehend. And, and, and so I just as your pastor, I want to be clear of my goal. My goal is not to make God more simple for you. My goal is not to make God more palatable for you. 
my goal is to make God more holy to you. That you would see his awe, that you would, that you would just tremble at his goodness and his love and his mercy. So City Light, would we see the Bible and just say, man, there are truths that I don't understand, but I know that I love God and I know that he loves me and I know that he sent his son to die for me. Amen? Would that be the cap on that? And so all of God's choosing, all of God's election, all of God's predestination, it results in verse 6. Look with me in Ephesians 1. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Because our salvation solely rests on God's mercy, grace, and choosing, he gets all of the glory, right? Like he gets every ounce of it. So someone asks you, why are you saved? Response, because Jesus chose me. When I was dirty and broken and running away, Jesus chose to save me. Understanding election and God's choosing puts us in our right place, broken, hopeless sinners, and puts God in his right place. Gracious and merciful king, granting salvation to those who did nothing to earn it. Right? Believers in the room rejoice that the Father has chosen you. And if you're not a believer in the room, if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet for salvation, you're wondering, man, I wonder if I'm chosen, you know? Know that you were chosen this morning to be in the room, right? Like God chose you to be in the room this morning to hear this message that Jesus came to die and save sinners. And his message to you this morning is to come, to repent, turn away from your selfishness, to turn away from your self-sufficiency and and depend on him. That that Jesus would choose you this morning to be in the room to hear this message. And so the invitation is to trust in Jesus. Start a relationship with him and then you'll know that you're chosen. Like that's as simple as it is. It's like, I, I don't know if I'm chosen. Trust in Jesus. Like that's it, you know? Um, um, but this is, this is just so huge, and I'm excited as a church to grow in our knowledge of the Bible and of what Jesus has to do with this. So first blessing, uh, the Father ha- has chosen us. And the second blessing, though only I'm just going to cover two this morning. You guys are like, dang, it's going to be long. The other blessing, the next one, is that this, we are redeemed by the Son. So we're chosen by the Father, and we are redeemed by the Son. Now these first three verses explain that we just covered the Father's plan right? And the next verses that we're going to study right now are the Son's payment. So first, the Father selects us, and second, the Son saves us. And so look at verse 7. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Notice that Paul says that we have redemption. The tense, right? Meaning that it's a current reality, like secured for us in Christ. But what is Redemption even mean, right? It's a fancy word. It seems sweet. I think we use it sometimes, but what does it mean? I'm just going to read a short story to help us understand it. A boy and his father uh, spent months making a beautiful model boat, which he began to sail at the lake's edge. And one day, the wind caught the tiny boat and carried it far out into the lake and out of sight. And day after day, the boy would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but always in vain. And then one day, as he was walking through town, he saw his beautiful boat in a store window, and he approached the proprietor and announced his ownership, only to be told that it was not his, for the owner had paid a local fisherman good money for the boat. If the boy wanted the boat, he would simply have to pay the price, and so the boy set himself to work, doing anything and everything he could until finally he returned to the store with the money, and at last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he looks at it and he says, you are twice mine now, because I made you and because I bought you. Not beautiful? That's redemption. And so I, I briefly just through these verses want to show us two things about our redemption. Uh, and then the first is the cost of our redemption. The cost of our redemption. Now to redeem something is to pay for it uh, or, or um, 
or, or a ransom for it, right? Pray a pi- uh, pay a price for it. And verse 7 says that to redeem you, Jesus had to, we are redeemed through his blood, right? So the price, the cost of your redemption, just to be clear, is Jesus' blood and the object is your soul. Uh, and, and then in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, this is reiterating the cost of redemption, uh, Peter says this, knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus uh, Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. City Light, uh, I love those verses, but um, you can tell how valuable something is by how much someone's willing to pay for it, right? Track with me on that. Like I have a little white Ford pickup that's got like 100,000 plus miles on it that I love. I'm proud of it. And, uh, and, and I could list that thing on Craigslist for $40,000 and guess how many inquiries I'm going to get? Zero. Like no one in their right mind is going to pay $40,000 for that truck. Why? Because it's not worth it, right? Like no one would have, that's crazy. But do you want to know the price tag on you? You know the price tag on if God wants to save you and, and redeem you and, and have eternal life? Do you know what the price tag on you if God wants to buy you back? Jesus, his, his, only, son's, uh, his only son's life, right? His only son's life and death. And guess what, Jesus? He saw that price tag. He said, man, you are worth it. Like, I'll, I'll pay it all. And he did. And Jesus died on the cross, spilled his precious blood for you. That's how valuable that Jesus thinks that you are. So valuable that he will let his own son die so that you might live. And so where did we ever get off, by the way, thinking that we're worthless or that we're not valuable or that we're damaged goods? No, you're not. You are so precious to Jesus that he would allow his precious blood to be spilled for you. So know that. Believe that. This morning that that's the that's the price tag on you and god gladly paid it oh and by the way just like the story of the boat the boy's boat you and i were already his by creation we were his by creation he formed us and made us but you and i got lost because of our sin right we rebelled ran away and orphaned ourselves from god but he came back and he paid a price for us right his son that's the cost of our redemption we are twice gods one by creation and one by christ's redemption The second thing I want us to see is the benefits of redemption. Okay, there's two of them we're going to focus in on. Verse 7 also says that we have forgiveness of our trespasses. And this forgiveness, he makes it clear, it's only found in Jesus. Nothing else, not your good works, not your improvement, only in Jesus. When John Calvin, uh, the famous reformer, preacher, preached this same text back in 1558, here's what he said about forgiveness. God puts our sins out of his remembrance and drowns them in the depths of the sea and moreover receives the payment that was offered him in the person of his only son. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, uh, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The promise of forgiveness, City Light, that is saying right here that's promised and benefited in you because of Jesus is that you don't have to bear the weight of all your sin and your shame and your guilt. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus bore it all on the cross. There's none left to pay. You're totally and completely forgiven, period. Not contingent on anything else simply by trusting in what Jesus has done for you. And then the other benefit we see in verses, is in verses 8 through 10. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the blessing of insight into the Father's plan, divine revelation. Back in verse 5, it says that the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. And so, as sons and daughters adopted by the Father, we get to be in on his plans, right? Like, it's beautiful. I, I, I love to be, I love when people, like, let me in on their plans, right? There's this episode of The Office, and Michael Scott is talking to Jim, and they kind of say an inside joke, and he's like, man, I love inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one someday. You know, it's like, it's like that's, what, that's what God is saying, that you're, you're in on his, not his inside joke, but his plan for eternity, right? So he says, man, I love you so much. You're my adopted son. You're my daughter, and I love you so much that I'm going to let you in on what I've been doing for all of eternity. Before you were born, before your parents were born, before any living creature was ever born, the Father had this plan in motion, and he says, I'm going to let you know. And what is this plan? It says clear, to unite all things in Christ. The chosen, adopted, redeemed children of God don't have to be pessimistic about the future. Don't we, right? We have, we have hope. We know that God is working to unite all things, to restore all things to himself. So when we face persecution and sickness and darkness and sin and the discouragement of our flesh, all of those things, we know that there will be one day when the Father makes all things as they should be. We hope in that day. We look forward to that day. And he's saying, child, I am letting you in on my plan. I'm letting you in on what I've been doing before the foundation of the world. So the cost of redemption is Jesus' blood and his death, right? But the benefit is, is complete forgiveness and full adoption as sons and daughters of the Father. That's amazing. How many of you guys watch This Is Us? Just like raise your hand if you watch This Is Us. Yeah, you can be proud about that. Uh, men in the room, don't be, don't, be sh- don't be shy. Don't be scared of that. My wife and I cry every week together. It's okay. Um, <laughs> I try to be tough for her. But, uh, but anyways, man, there's this scene that was so striking to me. Um, so Kate uh, is, uh, is auditioning to, be, uh, to get entrance into a performing arts school. And so um, uh, she said, they, they say, hey, we need an audition tape or something of the sort. And so her father, Jack, her dad, suggests, hey, I, I'll, I'll get, get, grab the camcorder and I'll record you singing. It'd be great. You're so, and, 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 he, and he just thinks she's of the world of her, right? He just thinks she's so beautiful. But Kate's struggle through the entire show is her weight and her self-image, right? And so she refuses. She says, nope, I, I'm just going to do the audio. I don't want to be recorded on video and send that in, you know, just from some of her insecurity. And so um, he says, okay. And so she's in a room, and she's got the tape recorder, you know, and she's recording her singing, and it's beautiful. And, and he comes around the corner with a camcorder, and he's recording her, and, um, and it's just, you know, beautiful, the, the sight. And, and she sees him. She's like, Dad, get out, you know, the typical, like, teenage girl. And, Dad, get out. And, and she doesn't want to be in there. And so he uh, goes, and later on, she, um, she watches the video of herself singing. And, uh, and as she's looking at it, she sees her dad's face in the reflection of the mirror as he came around the corner. And she sees, like, this, this proud gaze at his beautiful daughter. Like, th- this is look where, like, man, I, I, I don't want to look at anything else. Like, I just love you, and you're so beautiful. And she notices it, and she stops, and then she rewinds it and watches it again, and then she watches it another time. And later that day, she walks up to her dad and says, Dad, never stop trying to help me see myself the way that you see me. See, Delight, isn't this what Jesus does for us? Like, like a good father, God tells us who we really are. 
Like a good father, God reminds us that we're loved. And like a good father, I can promise you this, that he will never stop trying to help you believe and see yourself the way that he sees you. Okay, so I just want to ask you, uh, this isn't even my notes, but I feel like the Spirit's pressing this in on me. What are ways that you're falsely defining yourself? Like, what are ways this morning that you feel like you're seeing yourself like Kate might have seen herself? Uh, it could be a physical thing. It could be a spiritual thing. You're just down on yourself. You're thinking, man, I'm just, I just so unworthy and so ugly and so just distant, and God would never want me. What are, what are lies that you're believing that God wants to speak into this morning? And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, like if, if you've done that, this, this, these verses tell you exactly who you are, by the way. And so just to combat those lies, you look at these verses and it says that you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, are chosen, you are holy, blameless, loved, adopted, redeemed, and forgiven. So you want to know who you are? Read those verses and remember, don't rely on your emotions to tell you what you are or how the Father sees you. Rely on his word to tell you. That's going to be sure. That's going to be secure. And he's going to speak these beautiful truths. So would you, would we allow God's spirit to to show us the way that the father looks at us? As a proud, happy father would see his children and just be so ecstatic. And if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus this morning, if you haven't trusted in him, know that you have a loving father that loved you enough to choose you to be here this morning to hear this message. And his word to you that I feel like he's pressing in through the Bible is come. Like simply come. Like come as you are. Come broken. Come weary. Come tired and restless. Come sinful. Come broken and messy. And I will give you rest. Like that's his invitation to you this morning. And so if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, he is offering you this morning to be adopted by the Father, to be redeemed by the Son, and to be forgiven of all your sins because of what Jesus has done for you. Would you come? And would you relent of your self-sufficiency and trust in Jesus this morning? We have a great God, don't we? Let's pray.